I have no need to um, dwell on either the, the man about whom the lecture is to be or the man who is to give it. The lecture is entitled simply Lord Trenchard, from which it will be clear that the Chief of Air Staff is going to talk about Lord Trenchard the man. I believe that if he had been able to choose who should deliver this first lecture, he would have chosen the man who is the first Chief of Staff to come from Crandall, in which, the formation of which Lord Trenchard played such a great part with the foresight that characterized his activities. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you Marshal of the Air Force, Sir Dermot Doyle, Chief of the Air Staff, to deliver this lecture. It would be wrong for me to try to describe to you at Halton, of all places, Sir Dermot Boyle's career and his distinctions. He is a great distinguished officer and I have no words to add to that which you already know of him. So, sir, without further delay, I will invite you to read the first Trenchard Memorial Lecture. My Lord, Your Worship, ladies and gentlemen, it is, of course, for me a very great privilege to have been invited to give this first lecture of this memorial series. And indeed, any lecturer would be proud to have a splendid sub such a splendid subject. But, of course, its very magnificence places a very great responsibility on me this afternoon. In fact, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it would be impossible to do full justice to the subject. I've got to restrict the part of this great life that I talk about, and I'm going to concentrate on Lord Trenchard's work in connection with the Royal Air Force. Although I'll just touch on his ag other activities to show how diverse and effective they were. Now, as uh, Sir Charles Lamb somewhere said, we should be modest for a modest man, as he is for himself. Well, I'll try and keep that in mind, but it's very difficult. Because I must say at once, that Lord Trenchard was a giant amongst men. He was a giant in heart and mind and stature. And furthermore, his career was not one, but many. He was a soldier, colonist, an airman, a policeman, and a businessman. And he left his mark in all these activities. Now first, just a few words would be appropriate about his early life. 
Born in 1873, some 20 years later, he was commissioned in the Royal Scots Fusiliers and served in India till 1899, when the South African War started. He had the knack of serving, to quote, with all sorts and kinds of irregular forces. At that stage, he was involved with the Imperial Yeomanry, the Australian Bushman Corps, and the Canadian Scouts. In 1900, he was promoted to captain, but unfortunately, shortly afterwards, was wounded in the fighting west of Pretoria. He had a period of, when he was out of action, a period of convalescence, which I'm not quite sure of my facts, but I believe that during his convalescence he had a run on the Crestal Run, which seems to me a peculiar way of convalescing, but nevertheless entirely typical of the man. Now he returned to the fray, this time in the mounted infantry, and was engaged in operations in the Transvaal and the Orange and Cape Colony, uh, Orange River and Cape uh, Colonies. In 1903, as a brevet major, he was seconded to the West African Frontier Force, where he started his interest in the problems of West Africa and his knowledge about that part of the world, which he had to the very end. In 1908-12, he gave very notable service in Nigeria, where he really broke into the interior and was pioneering in a very big way. He commanded the Southern Nigerian Regiment, earned a DSO, and was twice mentioned in dispatches. But alas, he was not in good health and was invalid at home. Now, at this stage, many a lesser man would have regarded himself as having had quite a satisfactory career. He'd been continually on operations for some 19 years. He was about 40, and he'd done himself extremely well. But that was not Lord Trenchard's approach to life. He is very quickly applying for another appointment overseas. And the War Office, luckily, were taking their proper time considering it. At this stage, a great friend of his, Eustace Lorraine, was killed in a flying accident. And this seems to have turned Lord Trenchard's mind to the air. Because he very quickly applied for training as a pilot. And the War Office... Luckily, not having taken a quick decision on sending him overseas again, fortunately took a quick decision this time and allowed him ten days off to learn to fly. <laughs> this length of time was adequate. He went to Brooklands to Tom Sopwith's school. His instructor was Segrist, and in some ten days, in fact in a week, he got his uh, flying certificate. Six months later was his 40th birthday, and it would have been too late, because in those days you weren't allowed to go near aeroplanes if you were more than 40. Now, once again, you see, we see Lord Trenchard moving towards a new kind of force, a sort of irregular, uh, original force. It seemed to be in his blood. He was then posted to the Central Flying School, 
theoretically as a student, but he very quickly found himself a chief staff officer to the Commandant, who was uh, Captain Godfrey Payne of the Royal Navy. So we hear Lord Trenchard saying that he found himself wearing a Navy cap with army spurs. Amongst his other duties, he had to set examinations and see that these students uh, reached a proper standard. So within a fortnight, he set himself papers, he examined himself, and he declared that he had passed. And he always used to go around thereafter at CFS saying that he insisted on the same high standards being maintained as long as he was at the college. The fact is, of course, that he didn't really believe very much in exams. He thought that practical experience was far more important. And while he was there, in spite of his many other duties, he did, of course, keep up his flying and flew a lot with uh, Lieutenant Longmore, later Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Longmore. There's an interesting story. During the 1913 autumn maneuvers, they broke a tail boom. But it was very quickly, and we now know, efficiently repaired by the local blacksmith. But uh, the following day, Longmore and Trenchard were rather anxious about this uh, tail boom, whether it was going to stay with them or not throughout the flight. And they spent so much time watching the wobbling of the tail that they lost their way, and they landed in a field and uh, got the sort of instructions you do get when you land in a field and ask the way. And then, as the report says, they took off through a press of people, pigs, and chickens and finally arrived back at their destination, where they were surrounded, as you were in those days, I'm told, by flappers, all keen to have the autographs of the great aeronauts. And when Lord Trenchard was strutting away from the aeroplane, muttering to himself, he said, I signed them all W. Smith. I don't know what Longmore signed. <laughs> now, it's also, I think, not known that in 1913, round about the same time, uh, Trenchard, with uh, Major Gerard, held the British height record of 10,000 feet. You don't hear about these things unless you go reading a lot of detailed uh, documents on the subject. Now we got to get to 1914 and the outbreak of war. One important result of Trenchard having been at the Central Flying School during those, that previous period was that a large proportion of the RFC and RNAS officers had gone through CFS and consequently knew Trenchard and he knew them. They had also had the benefit of of his policy, which was known as Thorough. Uh, when the war broke out, all the existing squadrons were sent to France, and Trenchard was left behind uh, at Farnborough, as he said himself, to create something out of nothing. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, whichever way you like to take it, he wasn't left there for very long, because the reorganization of the Royal Flying Corps in France uh, led to him being appointed as the commanding officer of number one wing. And in 1915, he succeeded General Henderson in command of the RFC in France. Now, uh, at this stage, I'd like just to say a word to you 
about the character of the man. It will keep emerging as I'm talking about his life, but I think you ought to have something basic to start on, if there are any of you who didn't know him. Now, he had a rather forbidding exterior, but he was a very great gentleman, and in fact lived up to his own definition of a gentleman, which was a man who knows how to treat his subordinates. He was gentle in his ways, he regretted an argument almost as soon as it was over, he was always scrupulously fair in argument, unlike many of his opponents, and he was quite incapable of crooked dealing. He had great kindness and humour and a sense almost of mischief. I remember in 1927, when I was at the Central Flying School, the great man was coming down to inspect us. And we got all our airplanes pretty clean, we thought, and we thought we were really on the top line. And Trenchard uh, started poking round one airplane, the young officer got rather fed up with this. I mean, obviously my aeroplane is clean, was the young officer's theory. You're wasting your time. And um, he finally got so fed up with these grunting remarks, what's this and why is that not dirty and so on, you see. He said to Lord Trenchard, he said, if you want to see some rust, I'll show you some. I believe in theory there's some reason why you should have rust on the top of the sparking plug. I don't know what it is, but anyway... Trenchard was much too clever for that, and he said, there's a catch here, I'm not going to buy that one. And he said, changed the subject, and said to this young officer, have you ever changed a wheel on this aircraft? No, sir. Could you? Certainly, sir, if you've given me the tools. Give him the tools. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the tools, adequate tools, were put at the young officer's disposal, and uh, Lord Trenchard went on with his inspection up and down the line, and he kept looking back, saying, how's that young officer getting on? And all you could see was an aeroplane with the wing getting higher and higher and higher, <laughs> and the wheels still firmly on the ground, because this was the first oleotype undercarriage that we'd ever had in the Air Force. And, of course, putting your shoulder under the wing no longer lifted the wheel off the ground. The same young officer won the Snyder Trophy for Britain uh, a year later and also used to ski for England in his spare time, Dick Wagworth. Now, um, Trenchard had also got uh, characteristics in keeping with all great men that he'd never ask any of his subordinates to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He always used to rather complainingly say that he was condemned to ride about in a Rolls Royce and to sit in a comfortable chair conveniences which I may tell you I find entirely satisfactory. Uh, he had a great understanding of men and appreciated to a very, very great extent the need for high morale amongst air crew. He knew that in this new service the morale of air crew is a very a brittle and very important thing. He also was very keen on and saw the importance in training. During 1916-17, when technical strides were really very rapid in this new science, he wrote that improvements in mechanical science to be of any use in war 
depend on the skill and practice of those who use them. Now, his great friend Haig and his secretary, Morris Baring, who is a combined sort of poet and diplomat, give us an insight into Lord Trenchard's uh, character, sort of another aspect of it. He was a man of very strong purpose. Couldn't easily be diverted from what he wanted to do once he knew it was right. And furthermore, he got automatically attracted to men with similar characteristics. Uh, Haig, Smuts, and Churchill are examples. He always used to say, get to know the men who matter, the men who control our destinies. And I'm sure it's a very good piece of advice. Now, in 1917, we saw an outstanding example of Trenchard's insight and strength of purpose. This was when the struggle for air superiority in the First War was beginning to develop into a very important matter. And we must remember that these theories then were entirely new. It all looks very obvious now, because we in the Royal Air Force luckily were set off on the right lines. But at that time, there was a tremendous uh, drive by a lot of people to go on to the defensive. And furthermore, there were very heavy casualties in any offensive action that was taken in the air. But Trenchard was determined that the only way to get your air superiority is by offensive action. He knew that if you didn't, if you once went on the defensive, you'd give the initiative to the enemy. He also knew that the morale effect of one hostile aircraft over a country far exceeds its uh, capacity to inflict damage. Whether or not that is still true today, when one air aircraft can write off a whole city, is an interesting psychological study. Now third, he knew that you never could maintain the morale of pilots if you put them permanently onto the defensive. To get the best out of pilots, they had to be on the offensive and aggressive. Now, if the plans which Lord Trenchard laid down then had been implemented, we would have got air superiority virtually straight away. But alas, there were a lot of half-hearted measures, divided interests, and it wasn't until the 90, middle of 1918 that uh, his plans really came to fruition. Now, this inherent belief which he had in the offensive shows that he wasn't a romantic he was a true officer, a true warrior, who uh, saw that this spirit was the thing that mattered. And it's probably one of the greatest things that he's given to the Royal Air Force. Through it, we won the air superiority in World War II. Through it, in fact, we got the Royal Air Force and had it developed through that spirit in the between war years. It was an aggressive spirit that won the Battle of Britain. It was the spirit of the offensive which developed bomber command and enabled us to reach a position where we could go back onto the continent and win the war. And today, and for the last seven or eight years, it is the threat of the offensive that in fact has prevented global war in the world. There is no doubt about it 
and Trenchard saw all that in 1917. So did Smuts, friend of Trenchard's, at about the same time. Now, in January 1918, he was recalled from uh, France uh, to fill the post, the first CAS of the Royal Air Force, which was due to be formed a few months later. So Douglas Haig, of course, greatly regretted losing him. When you form a new service, you want men from everywhere to come and build it up and to get it. And Lord Trenchard wouldn't hear of this. He was quite clear that you couldn't denude the front line in order to go forming new squadrons and things which wouldn't make any immediate contribution. So it was on that issue he fell out, and he went back, uh, resigned, but fortunately uh, didn't become inactive. We retained his services because he was appointed to command the independent air force in France. This was uh, a force which was being built up to take independent action against the German homeland, and ultimately developed into a, an inter-allied independent air force. The sort of forerunner of Bomber Command and Strategic Air Command as we know them today. Now, again, I must uh, refer you to a quotation made about this time by, in the Smuts Report of 1917. Because it's interesting to see how these great men could see ahead accurately. This time, it's uh, Smuts. As far as, pre as at present can be foreseen, there is absolutely no limit to the scale of its, that's the Air Service's, future independent war use. And the day may not be so far off when aerial operations with their devastation of enemy lands and destruction of industrial and populous countries on a vast scale may become the principal operations of war. However, I'm glad to say that it was not long before Lord Trenchard was back at the Air Ministry again as CAS. That was in April 1919. Uh, then he had a service which had been in existence in theory for about a year. Its uh, continuation was already being threatened by rival factions, and people were saying, oh, well, it was just brought into force for the war, and there was no question of continuing it. And uh, we then see the work of the master builder, how he set about his task. He, first of all, wrote a memorandum which is famous today and is a paper on which our Air Force is based. Talking of the force he was given, he says, The necessities of war created it in a night, but the economies of peace have to a large extent caused it to wither in a day, and we are now faced with the necessity of replacing it and the new plant has a fruitful soil from which to spring. Isn't that a delightful touch of twitching, turning disaster to your own good? And that's what he did. Now, he realized that what the new force wanted was two things. First of all, the stability, and secondly, training. He wanted to wipe away all idea that it was going to be washed out. He wanted to lay some monuments that made it irrevocably clear that it was going on and going on forever. 
1920, he opened the RAF College at Cranbourne. In 1922, the Staff College at Ander. In 1922, also Halton. And as somebody has said, how appropriate it is that this first lecture in his memory should be held here. Now, those institutions, although the Staff College has moved its venue, are still the basic fundamental training organizations of the Royal Air Force. And they give us the stability which we want, and there's no question of removing Halton in a night. Now, that is quite a remarkable performance, if you think of it, to uh, produce those institutions at a time shortly after a war when the services are unpopular, when money is short, and in the face of tremendous opposition always from the other two services. But that wasn't enough for Lord Trenchard. What else should he do? What was the peculiar to this new force that he should do? After all, the other services had got cadet college and training establishments and staff colleges. What was different? Straight away, he put his finger on the greatest difference, research and development. And therefore, force lives on research and development. Lord Trenchard saw this. The other services had nothing like it. And he instituted a research and development branch of the Air Ministry, put it under a Dr. Wimpress, and it was those arrangements which led later on to the provision of the radar which won the Battle of Britain for us, the high-speed fighters, and the four-engine bombers. That was all the result of the direct arrangements made by Lord Trenchard. Still not enough. He wasn't satisfied. What else can he do? And he found there was one other great need, and that was to justify the use of the Royal Air Force in times of peace. How could he do it? One of his great troubles, you see, all along was that the air was never really proven in the First World War. It didn't stop him having the theories, which we now know are right, but it was very hard to persuade other people without any factual results to go. Well, now he found a very good peacetime role for the Royal Air Force, and in this he was lucky in that he had as his ally Winston Churchill. They had both together experienced the value of air control in Somaliland in 1919, when Churchill was then Secretary of State for War and Air. So Lord Trenchard looked around the world, and he hadn't to look far to find places where we were having great difficulties in undeveloped countries after the war. The general unrest which went on was widespread. And he settled on Iraq as a test place for air control. He found that in Iraq there were 92 units of British and Indian troops and four RAF squadrons trying to control that country at very great expense to the nation. He built up his case, and again with the help of Churchill, who had become colonial secretary at that time and who presided over the Cairo conference, it was decided that, in fact, Iraq would be run by the Air Force with eight squadrons and 12 army units, with great saving to the nation and every bit as good control of the natives, in fact, much better. That has been extended, and we do it in the Aden Protectorate now. 
Now, just about this time, a new name came on the scene, and that was Sir Samuel Hall, who in 1922, now Lord Templewood, 1922, was offered the job of Secretary of State for Air. The Prime Minister, in offering it to him, said, I think you may find it only, it'll only last a few weeks. That didn't in any way deter Sir Samuel Hall, and in fact he held the post with great distinction and with great credit for seven years. He paid a, a very great tribute to Lord Trenchard by calling him the prophet, while to himself he accorded the position of interpreter. And these two modest men, because they were modest, Anvil and Hammer together forged out the Royal Air Force, which has grown to the modern force which we know it today. But I don't think any of us who've had anything to do with uh, Whitehall or trying to produce anything will underestimate the enormous problems and the variety of those problems which had to be solved in building up a new, a new force. Always against continual opposition, if from nobody else from the Treasury, and there was a terrible thing called a ten-year rule which kept saying there won't be war for at least ten years. It's very hard to do business on that basis. But uh, Trenchard did business, and to great effect. The security of tenure was solved when uh, the Salisbury Committee gave a finding that there was to be a permanent air force, and that it was to build up 52 squadrons for home defense. Then they got down to it, these two, Samuel Hoare fought for the money, and Trenchard went on steadily implementing his original memorandum. That memorandum, the Secretary of State uh, used to quote that uh, it gave irrefutable evidence of Trenchard's vision. And of course we now know now, now know that it did. There were uh, many struggles in many directions, many of them over petty things, but we all know how much time petty things can take. There was no proper dress, no proper ranks, and uh, there were a number of problems to be solved. The dress was solved fairly easily, because fortunately I think Lord Trenchard had no faddish ideas about dress. He was very keen on the cane with the crooked handle, which he got and kept, and we all kept it for a long time, and I think he regards us really as one of the great mistakes that have been made in the Royal Air Force since that we gave it up. He always used to complain about that. Then ranks, he'd got a tremendous problem, amalgamating the Navy and the RNAS and the RFC and producing something that was understandable. There's a nice little story, which I must tell you, about when he was getting to the ranks and he thought of this rank of Air Marshal. And uh, as to everything in this new service, there was opposition. And uh, there were people who said that this great rank of Marshal who can't have it lightheartedly applied to a new little service like this, who hasn't really got anyone of that standard anyway, and uh, tried to brush it aside. But, of course, anyone who tried to brush Trenchard aside was on a very bad wicket, really. And finally he said, all right, let's have an inquiry. And there was an inquiry, and some poor unfortunate chap was chairing this inquiry, and uh, he started off roughly like this, said, now, Sir Hugh... Uh, very sorry to have to do all this, you know, but 
You can't go having these ideas. I mean, this rank of marshal. You can't go just flipping it up like that. I mean, marshal is a very great rank. You've got marshal of France, field marshal, yes, this Trenchard, and court marshal, provost marshal, and marshal and Snellgrove. <laughs> I may add that I once told that to an individual. I went through it all just as nicely as I've told you, and you kindly laughed. There was stony silence. And he looked at me, and of course I, I was looking a bit peculiar, I suppose, at this. And he said, oh, I see what you mean. I always heard Trenchard couldn't spell. <laughs> Well, now, flushed with success, flushed with success, Lord Trenchard then thought he would go up to the king and uh, finalize the top rank, and he went up and he said to his majesty, he thought the right thing for now, and must be marshal of the air. And rumor has it that the king was a bit taken aback and said, no, I think not, that would be a little too near the deity. <laughs> so, so we, we merely have marshals of the Royal Air Force now. They're really jolly good things, Master of the Royal Air Force. <coughs> well, anyway, through all these sort of troubles and adversities, thanks to Trenchard's drive and personality, the uh, Air Force emerged. The debutant service, as Sir Ham Samuel Hawke called it. Uh, it had gained its respectability and its individuality, and above all, uh, an esprit de corps, quite out of keeping with the length of its existence, but quite appropriate to the ever-increasing responsibilities which it was destined to undertake. And for all these things, we've Trenchard to thank. Now, there was a bit of a naval controversy about which you will have read when the Navy felt that they should control all airplanes that fly over the sea. And, of course, that was quite unacceptable to Trenchard's ideas who, because he insisted on the unity of the earth. And there was a tremendous battle. It was really a battle between Trenchard and Beatty. Beatty, the powerful, persuasive, popular naval leader. And Trenchard, the quiet, slow speaker, you wouldn't have thought that he had a chance. Well, his sheer sincerity of purpose and his sheer honesty gradually persuaded people, even people with naval backgrounds like Balfour and Salisbury, gradually persuaded them that his theory was right. Finally, the decision was given that the uh, naval air would be controlled by the Royal Air Force. That state of exi existed until 1937, when another committee, uh, obviously less uh, well-informed, the Inskip Committee, gave a ruling in the other direction. Trenchard knew, too, about the difficulties of inter-service liaison, and he did much to bring about the formation of the Chiefs of Staff Organization, and also uh, the opening of the Imperial Defence College to educate senior officers in inter-service, in an inter-service way. But Trenchard realized all along that he was trying to produce a service 
small, efficient, and of high quality, but that it couldn't be big enough if war came. So he developed his idea of the reserves, and consequently we got the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, an elite company of adventurous young men who, uh, in the event, proved of enormous value in the war and augmented our limited resources. But Trenchard had another purpose in formation of the Auxiliary Air Force, and that was to bring the civilians, the important civilians, into touch with the Air Force and Air Park to educate them and bring it into the homes of ordinary people. And this the Auxiliary Air Force did in a most valuable way. Now, for the same reason, he formed the University Air Squadrons. Here in the seats of learning in the country, it was important that they should be learning the right things and learning about the air. And that has had and is continuing to have a very valuable influence in the right quarters. So the country, you see, gradually began to realize what air power was and that the Royal Air Force was here to stay. Prejudices, one by one, were dismissed and dealt with, and Trenchard, uh, the prophet, and the planner, and although he hated being called the father of the Royal Air Force, gradually built up this great service. Anyway, he was the first officer of the Royal Air Force, number 01001. And in 1927, at the other end of the stream, he was made a marshal of the Royal Air Force, and brought the Royal Air Force into step with the other two services. Now, one other thing helped Trenchard, again, looking around, how could he prove the usefulness of the air in peacetime? And two events helped him, both in the field of air transport. The first of these was during the general strike of 1926, when there was no movement throughout the country at all. And Churchill had this idea of a British Gazette, but how could he distribute it? Trenchard said, we will distribute it. And the Royal Air Force did distribute it. And it brought the work of the Air Force right in amongst the public and did an enormous amount of good. Now, the second example was later, in 1929, with the evacuation of the British mission from Kabul during the trouble in Afghanistan. It was a remarkable air operation for those days, carried out in the most difficult country, in difficult weather, and entirely successfully evacuated the whole mission from Kabul. I think it took four or five weeks. Now, meanwhile, of course, Trenchard was going on, going everywhere, seeing everybody and everything, especially the former. He inspired and he instructed and he insisted on the highest standards. But, of course, he couldn't go on forever. And in 1930, January 1930, after <coughs> 11 grueling years as chief of the air staff, he relinquished his appointment. Has any man, I wonder, in 11 years done so much? 
in the face of enormous opposition, prejudices, ancient and misinformed, in spite of the treasury, he did it all. Uh, it was the faith in his theories, though, that I think was his most uh, valuable contribution, because he sold that, really, to the country by means of his singleness of purpose, even to the most ardent disbelievers. Now, in the Second World War, when the testing time came, every one of Churchill, of uh, Trenchard's theories was proved correct. Every one. If only in the between more years, those responsible had acted on them more energetically and accepted them more quickly, there would probably never have been a Second World War. And anyway, if there had been one, we would have won it more quickly, easily, and cheaply. However, after he retired, as you can well imagine, he was not content to do nothing. And very quickly, we found him as commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Well, again, it wasn't long before he left his mark. Police College, the forensic laboratories, and uh, uh, greatly improved accommodation for the force. Again, he made his mark. He was known to everybody, went everywhere, and knew exactly what was going on. There's a story about him which he used to tell during the war, when he was going around London, he got held up by some bombing that had been going on. He had to get out of his car and walk, walk up the hill. And he came to the top and there was a roped-off area. Well, I mean, roped-off areas weren't meant for Trenchard. He strided across the rope and straight across the area and arrived out at the far side where there was a very irate police sergeant who said, Sir, it's very dangerous. You shouldn't have come across there. There's an, exploded, uh, an unexploded bomb. And the... Trenchard got rather irate with this man and said, well, why didn't the constable the other end tell me and not let me risk my life like that? Oh, maybe he recognized you, sir, was the answer from the son. <laughs> well, now, he, he was never inactive, uh, but I haven't time, and I mustn't uh, go on expanding on the things that he did outside the Air Force. But he went on taking a tremendous interest in things to do with the air. Uh, speaking in the House of Lords and going around visiting troops throughout the war. I remember towards the end of the war when we were all flushed with victory. I thought victory was just around the corner. We'd all be bubbling over and he'd come around and talk to all the troops lying around in the grass. And he'd say, you're very pleased with yourselves. And he said, they'd all say, yes, sir, yes, we're doing jolly well. Well, he said, I wonder, are you? He said, we won the last war in four years. It's taken you six to do this, and you've had the air with you. Now, I saw him also for the last time on an official occasion when he came down to Bracknell, the staff college. I used to come down and talk to each course, and every course felt the better for it. And we used to lay on a little uh, guard of honor for him automatically every time he came down. And there were two incidents in this one guard of honor which showed I think first what a great man he is and secondly how impish he could be the first incident was going round the lines and as so often happens 
the one man he spoke to had got a very severe stutter. And you know, on these occasions, great embarrassment tends to build up round about. Sort of commandant started making marks which commandant shouldn't make, which is, this chap has got a stutter. I mean, it's terribly clear. And uh, Trenchard is quite undeterred by all this. And he just looked straight at this fellow, not uh, the way you tend to look away nervously and sheepishly. He looked straight at this chap. And he said, our king had a stutter much worse than that. He's all right now. And this chap just said, thank you, sir. Now that I thought was a great thing. Now for the impishness. Having gone round, the commandant said, sir, there's a, a warrant officer here that was with you, France, in 1916. Warrant officer X. Now, there was no warrant officer X with me in France in 1916. Awkward pause. Commandant said, well, I'm sure I've got it right. Looked across at the warrant officer. There's a warrant officer doing this. So when you get a warrant officer nodding on parade, it's really very serious. So, <laughs> so uh, he again said to Trenchard, he said, Sir, I think actually Warrant Officer X was with you in France in 1916. Trenchard said, Where is this man? So he's led across to this man and said, How do you do, Sergeant Major X? You see the point? None of these silly warrant officers in 1960. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, uh, President, ladies and gentlemen, I really must conclude. I've kept you longer than I should have. And I'd just like to say a few words in conclusion. I took up my appointment as Chief of the Air Staff on the 1st of January 1956, which happened to be a Sunday. In the morning I went to church. Not that I want to insinuate that I go to church only when I'm appointed Chief of the Air Staff. <laughs> In the afternoon, I went to see Lord Trenchard. Partially, because I could think of no better occupation on my first day as CAS. Secondly, because always to meet him was a very great inspiration. And thirdly, because Lord Trenchard and his gracious wife made it abundantly clear that they'd like me to come. I found him nearly blind and having difficulty with his breathing, especially when he talked much or very seriously about anything, which of course is a thing he was doing continuously. His brain seemed to be as clear as ever, and he inspired as always. He was way up above all petty squabbles and unimportant details. He went straight to the things that mattered. He left on me a, a lasting impression of greatness. I can't describe it in any way, other way. I left elated and inspired. I was just going off on a tour to the Far East in uh, Canberra. He asked me to come and see him when I came back, and I said that I would. But I got back on the 8th of February, and it was really too late. He was already very ill, and he died a couple of days later. Now, just to show you how right up to the very end 
he was interested and really involved in our work. An airman, a letter arrived in the airmanstry on the day he died, which he had dictated some two days before, asking for a very sensible, understandable letter. It was really asking, putting in a word for the old types of aircraft that were being left to rot somewhere in England because nobody would give them any housing pointing out in the big way he would that in the years to come those very aircraft would be of the greatest interest to the future peoples of this country. Well, there you are. Two days before he died, that was dictated and arrived in the air ministry on the day of his death. Well, then I found myself by one of those peculiar tricks of fate which sometimes occur. The first official function which I had to attend as chief of the air staff was uh, to attend the funeral of the first and greatest of my illustrious predecessors. I in myself in a sense being the product of his plans because as you've heard I came into this great service through Cram. And so Lord Trenchard's remains were made to rest in the Abbey alongside the great statesmen and warriors of the past and in the presence of a most distinguished company, all gathered together to do homage to a man about whose greatness there never was and never will be any doubt. But I'd just like to say this, that although his ashes lie in the Abbey, the spirit with which he so richly endowed the Royal Air Force is ours to keep and to cherish forever. In so doing, we will ourselves derive the greatest possible benefit and in the process we'll be paying the sincerest tribute to a very great man. Thank you, sir, for a, a most memorable and moving address. You, you, you have made some apology for the time you've taken. I don't believe anyone here would have had it a second less. It is not um, the custom on the occasion of first memorial lectures to have a, a discussion. I would now like to ask Major Bullman, uh, past president of the Society and a one-time member of the Royal Flying Corps, to propose a vote of thanks to Sir Bernard Boyle. Major Bullman. Mr. President, my Lord, Your Worship, ladies and gentlemen, in opening his lecture, Sir Dermot referred to the almost impossibility of dealing adequately with the great subject of his talk. It does indeed require, I think, to depict such a man as Lord Trenchard, a combination of the artist, the poet, and the orator. And I think tonight Sir Dermot has gone a long way 
in such a combination. My qualifications doing what I am now doing are slender indeed. I was indeed commissioned the Flying Corps in 1915 and therefore saw a lot of those early days of his work. And then in 1928, thanks personally to him, I had something to do with air engine development and which for many years kept me closely in touch with the Royal Air Force. Sir Dermot has, with his own sense of humor, pointed out, I think, very wonderfully, the essential humanity, the simplicity and the modesty of Lord Trenchard, using the historical facts of his actions, political service deeds, as the background of the essential man. If I may interpolate one memory, I think it was about 1916 or 17, a new type of aircraft came out, I think it was the RE-12, it was a Farnborough design, and uh, there was something not quite right for the tail, and indeed there were a distressing number of accidents, to such an extent that that first squadron in France was reduced to a very, very low state of morale. A desperately low state. And Lord Trenchard, hearing of this, had himself flown up in such an aircraft to this squadron, landed there just before lunch, went in, lunched with the officers, talked about this and that, everything except the aeroplane. And after lunch, went off in it back to base. And those pilots were amazed. And they felt, well, if old Boom himself can trust his neck to this crate, it's good enough for us. There's no more bother. You'll find, I think, in the life of every great man that he owed an enormous amount to his wife. And we are deeply gratified and delighted to have with us tonight Lady Trencher. She, I think, will also feel that her husband has been depicted as she would wish and as he would have liked. Lord Trenchard affected us all who knew him in such a profound way that one can never forget him. My recollection going back to 1915 is as clear today as it was then. And uh, we who were fortunate enough to live in those early days felt the warmth of his personality so to speak, the brightness of his presence 
shone on our helmets. And tonight, Sir Dermot, you, I think, have passed on to this audience the young Air Force, among whom perhaps there may be a future CAS. You have passed on to them something of the torch which brought Trenchard 380. And that, I think, will be the best thanks that you can feel in this task. And so, ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to endeavor to express on your behalf our thanks to the lecturer and uh, to move this vote of thanks. And I would add that surely no man is better fitted to have done this first memorial lecture than the present CAS, whom I believe history will recall in due time as one of Lord Trenchard's greatest successors. Mr. President. <laughs>